Track down a Bible if you can and get with me to 1 John, and we're actually in chapter 4 now. We're doing a series where we're looking at the meaning of Christmas, and uh, we're looking at this letter written by one of the followers of Christ, and uh, he gives us these different purpose statements throughout his letter. So he, we're not just looking at the events of, you know, the arrival of the baby in the manger. We're actually looking at the, the understanding from the biblical perspective of why. Why did God do this? And so over and over again throughout John's letter, he's given us different indications. He said, here's why the Lord appeared. And he actually, throughout the course of the letter, gives us at least five that I've found. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at, in chapter one, we found out that one of the reasons or the meaning for Christmas, the reason that the Lord arrived or appeared is so that we might have relationship, both with other followers of God, but also with God himself. And so that came in chapter one, verse three, we would have fellowship with, John says, with us, all of us who are professing Christ as Lord and with the father and his son. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, where we found that one of the reasons why the Lord appeared was to take away sin. One of the reasons why God sent his son, one of the reasons why the Lord appeared is so that he might deal with the biggest problem that we ever face, our own sinfulness. That was verse 5 of chapter 3, but then it also goes on in verse 8 of chapter 3, he said, and the reason why the Lord appeared was in order to destroy the work of the devil. And so the Lord has come to do that as well. And then here in chapter 4, we find another purpose statement, and it comes in verse 9. I'll read it to you, and we'll put it up on the screen. It said, He, God, sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him, or in order that we might live through Him. Now, that raises, for me at least, all kinds of questions. What does it mean to live through Him? or in him. So God sent his son into the world for this purpose, that we might live through him. And I started to try to unpack what John meant by in him, and I realized, whoa, that's like a whole nother sermon. Uh, Because he talks about it in chapters three, and in chapter four, and well beyond what we're going to read here today. But let me just simplify it for you, and and, uh, we'll see if it holds. But the idea is, the reason why God sent his one and only son was that you might be a Christian. So he sent Jesus for this purpose that you might live through him, or simply put, that you might be a believer in Christ. And so let's read the passage now. We'll pray and we will get to work. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, it reads like this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now as we open your word that you, by your spirit, would speak. Help us to know the meaning of Christmas. 
Help us to know what you intended in the sending of your son for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, what is the meaning of Christmas? And we saw it there in verse 9. The purpose statement was offered up, but when you read the paragraph that you find it in, you have to come to this conclusion. Whatever the meaning is, it has something to do with the idea of love. Does it not? If you read the paragraph again, you look at it again, what's the dominant theme there? What's the word that just keeps showing up again and again and again? Love or loved shows up in our verses 13 times. So it is top of mind for John. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about love. Christmas has something to do with love. And in fact, if you read on to the end of the chapter, all the way to verse 21, you'll find that the word love or loved or some form of it shows up some 26 different times. So obviously what John has in mind here is this concept of love. The meaning of Christmas has something to do with the idea of love. So what we find in our paragraph then are two things, very important things. First off, the definition of love. God gives us, he offers us a working definition of what he means when he uses that term. And secondly, we'll find the demand of love. It isn't just an idea out there floating in the abstract. It's something that ought to show up in the way that we behave, in the way that we live. And so let's get to work. The definition of love. Now, this is a very, very important thing to define what we mean, to set the terms, to say, okay, when we use the word love, here's what we actually mean. And God is doing that for us here. And in fact, um, when I do, when people ask me to do weddings, and I sit down with the couple, and we do premarital counseling, and then, you know, the ceremony. At some point in there, in fact, I was reviewing my notes this week just to make sure this was true. For as long as I can remember doing them, every couple, either in the premarital sessions or in the ceremony itself, I will take them to First John and say, here is the definition of love, because often we get it wrong. We have all kinds of ideas about what we think love is and isn't. As a society, people say things like this. It is a force. It's some force out there, and it happens inside of us, and whether it's a romantic relationship or a family relationship, it's just this thing that kind of bubbles up in us. It's a force, and we don't really have any control over that, but we fall in love or we fall out of love, and and the question I would have is, is that how God describes love? In my opinion, it is not. It is not the way that love is defined. Another way that people have talked about love, uh, especially in Christian circles, I've heard a lot of sermons and wedding ceremonies or, uh, you know, just in, in general that says love is a verb. It does something. It takes action. It takes initiative. And that is not wrong. That's an aspect of love, but that doesn't define it. That doesn't help us to really understand what it is and where it originates from. So, We have to get this right because if we get it wrong, we actually don't understand the essence of Christianity. In fact, we can say it like this. If you don't know what the definition of love is, you don't really know God. That's how strongly it is put in our passage here. It tells us that that in order to, to understand God correctly, you have to understand that he is love. Look with me at verse eight. It says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So now we're dealing, we're dealing with 
Some really important stuff here. We're dealing with the character of, of God himself when we're talking about love because God says that is who he is. So we can't say he's just this force or he's the, this feeling and you can fall into him or fall out of him. You can't say he's a verb. You can't say he just, you know, does all this different stuff. That's true. He does certain things, but he's not out there verbing a lot. He, he is love. That's how he defines himself. So we have to understand, what is love? What does it mean that God is love? What does he mean by that? John Stott puts it like this. He says, the words God is love mean not that love is only one of God's many activities, but rather all his activity is loving activity. And he goes on to say that even the things that we often consider unloving like his judgment, even that is done in love because God is love. So it's not just this tacked on item that you go, God is all these different things and love is just something you add to the mix. No, God, when he reveals himself, he puts it like this, he is love. You go, okay, Cor, I'm interested now. So what is it exactly? Talking about God, you're talking about love, but let's define it. What is Love, And we find then in verses 9 and following that he both displays and defines it in reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 9. It goes like this. This is how God showed his love among us. This is the display of his love. This is the visible evidence of his love. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. If we want to know what love is, God draws our attention to the Son. God sent His Son into the world, the one and only Son, that we might live through Him. So if we're trying to understand love, we have to look to the Son. We have to recognize that the sending of God's Son is something that helps us perceive what love is. John Stott again puts it like this, the sending of God's Son was both the revelation of His love and indeed the very essence of love itself. No greater gift of God is conceivable because no greater gift is possible. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened in all of history. God sent his one and only son. Now that's getting us into that proximity of, of understanding love. We're looking now at the son and we're finding that he was sent in order that we might live through him, that we might be Christians, that we might reciprocate our love and obey him, that we might have the spirit in us testifying to who Jesus is, that we might begin to live like him. But then he gives us the definition in verse 10, and he says it like this, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love of God is on display in the sending of the son and specifically in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent the son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We look to the cross and we see God's love. It's there that we understand the good news of the gospel. It's the undeserving receiving from God, the undeserving getting what they don't deserve because God is love. When you ask, why, why did God do that? Why, why does God love me? And you begin to look at the, what the Bible actually says, you have to come away with this idea. He loves me because he loves me. He doesn't love me because I first took initiative and he said, wow, this dude's really cool. I want him on my team. Let's get him on board. 
He doesn't love me because he looks at me and sees all this potential that if I become a follower, then I'm somebody who's advantageous for him. He doesn't love me for any reason other than the fact that God is love. So he's able to look at those who don't love him first, and he expresses love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us in that way. Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That means that he was taking the penalty and the punishment for the things that we deserve for disobeying and disregarding God. And he was gifting us with his perfect righteousness. That is the essence of love. God showed his love at the cross. St. Augustine put it like this. He said the cross was the pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. Now, you know, I've got a music stand up here, but in older traditional churches, they have a pulpit and preachers would get behind it and they would declare their message. They would preach their message. Well, St. Augustine is saying the cross is the pulpit from which Christ preached his love to the world. That's the place where you look and you see the visible display of God's love for the world that he has made. So God is love. The definition of love then has something to do with the cross. Now, when I sit with, with couples, I usually take them actually to 1 John 3.16 because it's a little more straightforward. But 1 John 3.16 reads like this. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought also lay down our lives for each other. This is how we know what love is. You look at the cross. Jesus laid down his life for us. He was willing to die in our place. So we ought to lay down our lives for each other. So when we think about Christmas and what it means, we can't really talk about the manger without thinking about what also happened at Calvary. We can't think about a baby in a manger without also thinking through, why did God do this? Well, he sent his son in order to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross is the place where we understand the, the fulfillment of God's love for us. So the incarnation or the arrival or the, you know, God taking on flesh and the person of Jesus Christ, it was the historical inbreaking of God's love for the undeserving like me. The good news of the gospel is that God loves us, not that we loved him first, but he loved us because he is love and he sent his son to die in our place. Now, here's where this gets radical because that still feels a little bit abstract. But now when we start thinking about, well, how do you describe love? What would love look like? The way that we can begin to talk about love now is it will look cruciform, meaning it will look like Calvary. The love of God tells us that he was willing to do for the undeserving what they most needed at great cost to himself. He was willing to love us even when we were unlovely. That is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. The biblical reality of love is it's gritty. Now, when you start to apply that to relationships and you start to think the way that I'm going to describe my love for other people, whether it's a spouse or a family member, I'm now going to use categories like what, what's been presented here. I want my love to look cruciform. I'm going to do what's best for them even when they don't deserve it. I'm going to do whatever's necessary to, to advance their good even at great cost to myself. I'm not going to think about this in a transactional way. What do I get out of this? If I love you, what do I get in return? No, no, no. I'm going to look at somebody even if they're not deserving of my love in the, in the way that I would just define that 
I'm able to say, love demands that I give of myself freely for their good. Now, if that began to shape marriages and families and societies, we'd be in a much better place, which is where we're going today. The second thing that we find here, so the first thing we found is a definition of love. The second thing that we find here is the demand that love makes on us. We don't just want to have an idea of what love is. We actually want to perform it. We want to live this thing out. We're being called and instructed to do this. So we are called to love one another. And in fact, it kind of comes as bookends here in our section. In verse 7, it tells us, Dear friends, let us love one another. But then later on in verse 11, it's reiterated, it's bookended. It's it's saying, look, we need to love. This is what we're supposed to do. Because God has loved us in this way, we ought to love each other. So we are being invited by God to be loving people and to let our definition be informed by the way God loved us on the cross. But it goes even further than that. It tells us that love in real time reveals whether or not we really know God. That that raises the stakes. Love in real time reveals whether or not we really know God because God is love. So look at verse 7. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So when, when people are loving, it is on account of they are beginning to reflect the character of God. They, they, are, they are born of God and they know God. Now, he's not saying that everyone who ever loves is a true believer. We know people who aren't Christians who are actually at times much better at loving people than sometimes professing Christians are. We can find them in our neighborhoods and in our schools and workplaces. It's not saying everyone who ever loves is born of God. It's saying that love originates with God. And if you're a Christian and you claim to be in a relationship with him, then you certainly better be loving like God is loving. And in fact, that's what verse 8 goes on to say. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So Christians, if you claim to be in a relationship with God and you're not loving, there's a big question mark on your life. There's a problem there because this is saying that if you do not love, you do not know God because God is is love. So Christians, we are supposed to be a people who are displaying the reality of God in the real time of our love between one another and the world. So we have to be very, very diligent here. This is high priority stuff then. This is not some optional track, right? Like you go to a conference and you can pick the tracks you want to go to. You can, you can say, look, I'm not too in- interested in this thing. With Christianity, you can't say, loving other people, that's optional for me. No, 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 this is, this is essential. If you are a follower of God, God is love, therefore you also need to love one another. So love originates and emanates with God, but he's inviting us to participate. Look at verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because we've received God's love, because we're objects of his grace and his mercy and his compassion, because we've experienced salvation through trusting in Jesus Christ, because of all of that, then we need to look at the world and say, we ought to love each other. 
If we've received that kind of extravagant love, then we ought to display that love to others. And when we do that, this is the craziest part, at least for me, when we do that, we actually show the world God. The claim is quite radical, but it comes in verse 12. It tells us that when we love, people see God. The invisible God becomes real and tangible to people. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Here's the logic of that sentence. He's saying, you know, God is invisible. But when we love, people are able to see the love of God on display. So this week, we'll have our Christmas Eve services, and people who maybe don't ordinarily show up for church will turn up, and they'll be here, or they'll watch online. And wouldn't it be nice if we could just like hologram God and go, here he is. Look at him. He's awesome. You should believe in him. Well, we don't have that option. He's invisible. But when they turn up and they look at us, here's the question that we have to wrestle with. Will they find God? Because John is saying the quality of our relationships, the way in which we deal with each other, this invisible God is fulfilled in us or is completed in us when we actually love each other. People will come to a church, they'll make evaluations about the music, about the preaching, about the availability of childcare, about the parking and the facility and all of that, and that's fine. They have that freedom to make those decisions. The, the, the surprising thing that people need to find when they come to church is the presence of God in relationships. Meaning they come in here and they see how we deal with each other, how we love each other, how we interact with each other. And that is supposed to, according to this passage, is supposed to make the invisible God real. They're supposed to see something and in that the love of God is made complete. And they're supposed to move away from that then with this awe. God is there. Now, I know that that's an incredible invitation. David Jackman puts it like this. He says, here's the visible manifestation of the invisible God. It is the love between Christians. That in itself should make us stop and think about how important this responsibility is. We have a high calling here to display God to a watching world. Fran Schaefer calls it the apologetic of the gospel. Apologetic means like a, a reasoned case for it. And he's saying, look, Christian communities are supposed to be the place where people can come in and they can see, here's some evidence, some very compelling evidence that God is real. Now, when we evaluate Park City Church and our experience on Sunday mornings, I think we have to make some adjustments then right? We don't just want people to wander in and go, well, that was a nice little service. We want people to experience real relationships where they see love flowing back and forth between us. And that's one of the reasons why in this upcoming year, we'll reboot our group's ministries. We'll think through how do we get environments where we're not just coming to church and sitting and watching or watching online, but we're figuring out how do we do life together? How do we spend time loving each other well? How do we care for each other? As we think through our groups, we, we think about three different things. We, wanna, we, we want groups to be a place where people aren't just studying the Bible, right? There are Bible studies out there where what you come away with is those people love the Bible. I'm just not sure they care for me. 
that's not okay. So when you're in a group experience, one of the things we hope that people will find is that there is care flowing between the members of the group. And we want people to be growing in their understanding of God, growing in being disciples of God, learning how to live in and through Him. We want people to be on mission, thinking through how do we take this good news and bring it to the ends of the earth, at least to the ends of our communities. We want other people to know this incredible reality, but this is what God is inviting us to. When we love each other, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. There is the meaning of Christmas. There it is. What does John mean when he says, the Son of God was sent into the world that we might live through Him? He, he, he defines it right here. Here's what it is. It's when we love each other, and then God takes up residence in, our, in us. That God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. Jesus came so that we might be a community of love. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would help each of us realign our hearts around what you want today. That you would help us to become a loving community. It's so easy to wrongly define what we think love is and then to excuse ourselves from doing the real thing. Help us instead look at other people and think about how can I do what's best for them even if they're undeserving and even if it costs me everything. Lord, help us to love like you've loved us. And then, Lord, let the way that we interact and the reality of our relationships be a placard of your grace and your mercy. May people come and observe and say, God is real. He's invisible, but I've seen a display, a manifestation of his presence in this people. Lord, help us to be that kind of church for your glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.